Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 9 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this ninth episode of the fourth series, we're taking a look at all things Islamic finance. Now, I'm going to set a scene with lots of facts and figures for you. According to the Cambridge Institute of Islamic Finance, the assets under management of Islamic banking and financial institutions around the world in 2021 reached over $2.7 trillion. Now, big number, but small compared to the estimated global financial services assets of $500 trillion. But also, according to Cambridge Institute, the average annual growth rate of the industry over the last 10 years is 11.7%. And there really aren't many industries, particularly in financial services, that can say that. Now, the industry does remain bank-centric, and the estimate is that three-quarters of global Islamic finance assets are held by banks. Another stat for you, according to Refinitiv, 2021 was a strong year for Sukuk, Now, that's the Islamic finance equivalent pretty much of bonds. There was more than $185 billion worth of issuance. And there was also a growth, and we're going to feature on this particularly, in sustainability and green-themed Sukuk, with the marketplace reaching $15 billion. Now, also on the Sukuk front, the UK government returned to the market and issued a $500 million Sukuk double the previous offering they did back in 2015. Now, not every financial services firm is going to choose to consider Islamic finance as a strategic opportunity, but it is a growing area with substantial global potential. And while ESG credentials are becoming particularly interesting for those firms that have got to do an awful lot of reporting on that, and obviously reputationally want to have their green credentials up front, I would also suggest that Islamic finance is an area in which risk and compliance functions are absolutely required to play a critical role. Now, to discuss this opportunity and the issues and the challenges, I'm delighted as ever to say I'm joined by Lindsay Rogerson. Hi, Susanna. Good to be back. Thank you. So I'll, I'll start with a wee bit more of an introduction. And, and for those of you who are super familiar with Islamic finance, just bear with me for two minutes. Islamic finance is underpinned by Sharia law, and the Islamic economic model emphasises absolute core fairness. There is, for instance, a requirement that everyone involved in a transaction makes informed decisions and must not be either misled or cheated. On a macro level, the Islamic model aims at social justice and prosperity for all. And indeed, there are either uh, there are also specific Sharia rulings that seek to reduce the concentration of wealth in a few hands that is perceived to be detrimental to society. Now, many people know what Islamic finance does not permit, and that is things like riba, that's R-I-B-A, and that's usually defined as usury or interest, or garah. I hope I haven't butchered that. Uh, pronunciation, that's spelt G-H-A-R-A-R, and that is undue certainty. Now, that is, those are before the prohibitions on things like alcohol, pork products, armaments, and gambling. Sharia scholars are required to approve Islamic finance products, probably the most well-known of which, which I've already mentioned, is Sukuk, 
And that's, as I've said, the conventional finance equivalent of bonds. And then we have TACAFL, the conventional finance equivalent of insurance. Now, it is worth saying up front that Sharia scholars do not necessarily always agree with each other. But the guiding principle of Islamic finance is that of risk and profit, or indeed loss, is shared together with the overarching contractual certainty. Now, as you might expect, countries where Islamic finance predominates are those with large Muslim populations. But jurisdictions such as the UK are seeking to be a global hub for Islamic finance. Now, that's not only because the UK has a relatively large Muslim community. Now, that's at the moment estimated about 3% of the population. But also, as I've mentioned, very consistently high growth rates in Islamic finance and the sheer fact London is one of the world's leading financial centres. So taking a step back and away from London specifically, Linz, where are we, particularly on the international approach to all things Islamic finance? So, Susanna, um, as you've set out, the sort of there's the the requirement for these financial products to be um, compatible with Islamic principles, the Sharia concept. However, financial products also have to be compatible with global financial regulation. And so where we are with that is um, actually it's the 20-year anniversary this year of the Islamic Financial Services Board. Um, that's an international standard-setting body um, that promotes the development of prudent and transparent Islamic financial services industry. Um, and how it does this is it um, it recommends international standards um, and uh, which are consistent with Sharia principles. Um, so to date, it has produced 36 standards. There's 22 of those in the banking space, seven in the capital market space, and five in the insurance or TACAFL space. So, um, and it's currently working on some sort of green uh, green and ESG uh, 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 standardization um, in 2022. So what, what does that mean? So as you rightly said, um, the uh, Sharia compliance is down to the Islamic scholar, but there are sort of general principles um, of sound financial products which are can be overlaid on top of that and try and um, build um, standardization through creating these core principles, and that's that's what the um, the IF. B, sorry, IFSB is 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 about. Um, that 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 said, as as you also rightly uh, pointed out, this is a market which is attractive uh, for its growth potential, not just in Islamic um, uh, countries where as as uh, um, that are predominantly is Islamic in population. Um, it's also an attractive. Uh, uh, target market for the UK and several other European um, countries as well have been dabbling with certainly with um, Sukuk uh, launches and as you say the UK has said that it's 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 committed um, in this in this area so hopefully I've explained a little bit about the idea behind the Islamic Financial Services Board which is about bringing together these developing core principles um but while respecting that there are different regulatory approaches, aren't there, Susanna? 
there are very different regulatory approaches. Yes, thanks, Linz. Um, there's you can probably put the jurisdiction specific regulatory approaches into three buckets. Um, the first off is where Islamic finance isn't part of the uh, defined regulatory remit of the regulators. So that would be typical of the UK and the US. But that's not to say that the UK and the US regulators don't seek to accommodate Islamic finance within their approach. They acknowledge that Islamic finance products are perfectly valid and they seek to enable them to be within the regulatory perimeter, but they do not seek to second guess or oversee the Sharia elements of those Islamic finance products. In almost complete contrast, there are some jurisdictions where there is direct Sharia regulation from, say, the central bank. And a very good example of this is Malaysia. Bank Negara has direct power to oversee Sharia uh, decision-making within Islamic finance institutions and exercises a sort of coordinating and coherent approach to all of that. So the aim with the Malaysian uh, regime is that all of the Sharia decisions within Malaysia are broadly speaking equivalent. Now, to come back to a point I made earlier, that doesn't necessarily mean that something that is deemed Sharia compliant in Malaysia is necessarily Sharia compliant in another jurisdiction. But that's what Bank Negara does. It has direct Sharia oversight. And then the third uh, approach is a sort of hybrid of those two. And this, there, an example of this is the Dubai Financial Services Authority. And it, it, what it does is it has oversight the Dubai Authority has oversight of the proper constitution of the Sharia board. So in other words, has it been put together properly? Is the governance and systems and controls infrastructure all right? What it doesn't then oversee is the actual decisions taken by the Sharia scholars. So all of those regulatory approaches allow for and accommodate Islamic finance. Some are distinctly more overt and hands-on than others, but all of them facilitate Islamic finance, but just in very different ways. Um, so, Linz, moving on to some of the regulatory developments and the challenges. I mean, I mentioned in my introduction that, you know, ESG and green, in inverted commas, is very much a thread that is coming in to Islamic finance. So, with the backdrop of COP26 last year, where are we with Islamic finance and, and green? Um, well, it's an exciting space um, in Islamic finance, uh, just as it is in the for the rest of the, the world. You know, everybody's eyeing the opportunity there. I just before I go on to explain COP26 and some specific developments from that, I just want to take one step back to um, on the on the regulatory space, it, it, um, if I may, and just talk briefly about the maturing um, Islamic finance world. And so um, there, there's a very interesting uh, sort of default going through at the moment um, for uh, Garuda Airline. I hope I have pronounced that correctly. Apologies if I haven't. Um, so defaults aren't straightforward, um, you know, as as they are in the in the non-Islamic world. You know, it, it comes down to national laws, etc., etc. Though there are, you know, it, so 
this is being um, looked at quite extensively by um, the rating agencies to sort of see if it will actually set sort of some standards for how these how a defaulting Sukuk would play out in the future. And so I just wanted to sort of flag that and, and also actually highlight the role that um, rating agencies, although obviously... Uh, 20, 2008 taught us that we shouldn't rely on um, you know, on rating agencies and, um, entirely and um, the the worry about greenwashing and ESG ratings is is you know is is, is there as well but rating agencies can offer some kind of guidance um, and additional comfort to compliance um, when you are looking at um Sukuks and other Islamic financial products. I just wanted to flag that and I will leave it there. So COP26, yes, everybody everybody is excited about ESG and climate. And um, as we know, uh, the predictions for uh, this market are quite considerable. So one from COP26 was there was an agreement to unlock 30 billion of green and sustainable finance by 2025. Um, and I know Susanna gave you some numbers at the top of this. I'll just give you one um, more. And that was in 2019, the green Sukuk market was 3.5 billion. So that's a tenfold increase in a very short uh, space of time. So it, it, it is, um, it's, it's an area that, uh, people are exploring and what they're one of the um area one of the, the the key things here is to try and align um and there are various projects afoot to try and align um islamic finance with the sustainable the un sustainable development goals of which there are 17 and that's not a that's not that's not a kind of squeezing something that doesn't match that it doesn't really match. They are you know they are as Susanna set out at the top of this podcast. You know the, the underlying principles are a pretty good match for you know the sustainable um, development goals, and so that's really an opportunity that's being explored. And I would expect to see a lot more green Saduk and climate Saduk and um ESG Saduks uh Sukuks, um in the in in the in the in the near future. Um I just want to highlight a couple of other opportunities in the Islamic space actually. And I think an opportunity is the is the right word. Um so right now in the UK, if you go on to the uh Moneyfax, which is the um industry uh, it's where it's where, it's where retail consumers go to check savings rates. Um, the top three savings bonds in the UK at the moment are all Islamic savings bonds by some margin. So um, Al-Rayan Bank's three-year bond um, has an expected rate of profit, which is the, it's, it's for the purposes of what I'm talking about, it would be the equivalent to the interest rate on a normal savings bond. So the expected rate of profit is 2.11%. Okay, there are, I checked the big five banks in the UK, there are none of them are offering a three year savings bond at the moment. So I dropped down to the two year savings bond. So the two year savings bond, um, again, all Islamic uh, savings bonds are at the top of the table. 
uh, the two-year rate is 1.96. Now you compare that to Barclays' two-year rate at the moment is 0.4 and HSBC's is 0.3. So the point that I'm using to illustrate this, um, and it's a point that's been made to me recently, is that actually people just seeking yield and seeking a better return on their money um, are, you know, accessing these products. They're, they're at the top of the table in what is the, you know, the UK, UK's go-to uh, retail um, investment site. So um, that's so that's really, you know, quite a significant change because, you know, interest rates are rising now, but they are, base rates are rising, but those rates are certainly not being passed on uh, by traditional lenders. So there's an opportunity there. And the other thing I wanted to flag was the issue in the UK, which has now been going on for more than a decade. It was first, the government, the UK government first offered to look at this in 2014. And just last month, it said it was still considering it. But there is mounting frustration amongst um, Muslim students in the UK that there is not, that they are being excluded from higher education for lack of access to a Sharia equivalent of a student loan. And so, you know, obviously that's a that's another potential development and opportunity um and i will i will just stop flagging opportunities there susanna <laughs> thank you well and and i think the student loan point highlights that islamic finance and conventional finance often have to find a way to work together or live alongside each other and it Yes, the UK government, I suspect, really does need to get its act together um, somewhat more quickly than it has done on all of that. So what if, shall we say, conventional finance firms are looking to consider the potential of Islamic finance? One thing they will have to think of is how they combine conventional Islamic finance. Now, the way that mostly happens at the moment is the use of what's called Islamic finance or Sharia compliant windows. And they operate within your existing financial services authorizations and licenses. But it has some interesting ramifications that firms do need to think about. I'll just give you a couple of examples so you can see the sort of direction of travel on all of this, because they will be jurisdiction specific and Islamic finance product specific. But they're all the art of the possible. Um, they really are. Now, just one example of how Islamic finance and conventional finance sort of live actually relatively comfortably alongside each other is deposit guarantee schemes. Um, most jurisdictions have deposit guarantee schemes. So when you know you put your life savings in the bank, there is a certain level of those savings that is guaranteed as being safe should that financial services firm fall over for whatever reason. But a guarantee like that does not fit with the profit and loss sharing stance and approach from Sharia. So what happens, certainly here in the UK, with regard to deposit guarantee schemes, is that if you are have if you have an Islamic finance product, so your current account, a deposit account with an Islamic finance bank, or through an Islamic finance window with a conventional firm, you have a separate piece of paper um, that's saying basically that the uh, customer, who the purchaser or the depositor for um, the the 
deposit choose will choose not to exercise the deposit guarantee scheme should the financial institution fail. So it's not making the deposit guarantee scheme null and void. What it is saying is that the depositor has the right to choose not to use the deposit guarantee if they don't want to. That, I know it's a certain finesse, but that enables both the Sharia principles to be complied with, but also access to deposit and, guarantee, uh, deposit and current accounts in a conventional bank. Another example for this is the need for parallel governance structures for um, Sharia windows. And that's really quite an interesting concept because what you can have are two parallel but interlocking governance structures. So you have a Sharia board, a Sharia scholars taking decisions, but the systems controls, the control infrastructure, the record keeping is all very much mirrored and parallel to the conventional side conventional finance side of it. So again, you have the regulatory approach as a consistent overarching one, but what you have done is you design it separately, build it separately for your conventional finance approach and then your Islamic finance approach. And they can live very comfortably alongside each other, particularly if they are very much mirrored. Also, what you do need to do in those circumstances is make sure that the overarching board, so your group board, has the understanding and the knowledge and the awareness to know what to expect from Sharia scholars and how they take decisions and how they then report on them. And one final um, thing for to consider is segregation of assets. The assets that are deemed Sharia compliant need to be kept separate from conventional finance assets. And you know what? Most banks are very, very familiar with the segregation of assets concept. Client money is always segregated. So again, it is using the conventional finance infrastructure's regulatory approach, but just interpreting it differently to accommodate Islamic finance approaches. It's not the easiest thing to do, but it is absolutely, as I have said, the art of the possible. Now, coming in just on really to the takeaways for all of this, and, and whilst we have hopefully given an insight into some of the really very interesting opportunities that Islamic finance um, gives, particularly with terms of yield, that's no small thing just at the moment, but equally in terms of its green and ESG credentials, again, no small thing just at the moment, but the one thing I would say is that it's not a quick fix. It is a long term investment. You would have to invest in your skills, knowledge, awareness, your risk and compliance infrastructure. But you know what? Neither of those are bad things either. So Islamic finance could well be an extremely useful way of a firm diversing, diversifying its risk and income streams. Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there needs to be a greater standardization of approach um, in terms of Sharia. I mean, for instance, I mentioned um, Malaysia and Bank Nagara and its Sharia compliance. The decisions taken there are consistent across Malaysia, but there is, for instance, absolutely no guarantee that something that is deemed Sharia compliant in Malaysia 
would be deemed to be Sharia compliant in Saudi. Though, again, that is a knowledge and an awareness, and it is something you would build into your strategic approach for Islamic finance. Linz, over to you for takeaways. Thanks, Susanna. So I just really have um, one takeaway because we've spent a lot of time talking about um, opportunities already. Um, And that is just really to flag that Islamic finance is evolving just as conventional finance is evolving. And um, so I came across a, a new Islamic finance term for my, for me anyway in a paper I was reading recently and it's called Taib or um and so this is um this was in the the paper which I will include in the show notes which was by the uh, UK Islamic Finance Council and the U and the UN Sustainable Development Goals and it's really about extending that the 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 the, the concept into a what they're envisaging is is a kind of a kite mark for um, Islamic ESG products, basically, um, and so it's just just it, it just really to flag that you know sort of uh, that this is an area which is still developing as you as you would ex- expect um, new ways to meet the uh, market need, and I'll leave it there. Particularly the green market need, yes. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and and just to give a sort of straight up definition of Taib, it would appear to, at its core, mean pure and unsullied. So that is a really interesting kite mark to be developed and may have real power if they can do that very sensibly. Um, So thank you, Linz, and thank you for listening. And thank you very much for uh, listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. Do hope you found it interesting and useful. Linz has mentioned links we'll reference in the podcast notes. What I'll also do is include a link to Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's quarterly Islamic finance roundup. Um, So that'll be there, the usual link to Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence itself. As ever, we'd very much appreciate if you could take the time to review the podcast and do let us know for any suggestions for future topics. Thanks for listening. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.